Welcome to 7 Seconds or Less. This is a podcast about the NBA with a Phoenix Suns focus. My name is Max McCauley and I am joined as always by David Nash. David, for the first time, not only in the history of this podcast, but in the history of Devin Booker's NBA career, the Phoenix Suns have won four games in a row. How are you feeling? We're streaking, Max. We are streaking. I, <laughs> man, I can't even... When's the last time they won three in a row? Do you know? I, I didn't look at that up. Oh, I did a little bit of research for something a bit later, but I, I'm not even sure if it's uh, if there was a three before the last time we won four in a row, to be honest. But it's fun to be a Suns fan for once again, and hopefully it uh, continues in this direction. Yeah, seriously. But uh, even if it doesn't, we're going to have this podcast forever, David. And we're really going to enjoy this yep. one. This one's going to be essentially dedicated to raving about every key player on the team. Yep. Uh, we'll, we'll put a special focus on the new guy, Kelly Oubre, uh, just joined the team. We'll, we'll focus on, you know, healthy guy, Devin Booker. He's almost like a new guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Josh and Aiton, I would say, have both been playing really well. So we'll focus on that. And, but we'll talk about everyone. Uh, and then after we're done with that, if we still have time, and we will have time, we're going to go long. Uh, we're going to get a little league-wide stuff going on. We're going to talk about some uh, some things that are intriguing us around the league. We're going to talk about one trade each to save a team or, you know, just help a team that we think would be interesting. Yep. Uh, we're going to talk about new and falling stars as it relates to the All-Star game. And we're going to discuss one unexpected thing about the season that has us excited going forward because it's been a really interesting, fun season, David. It really has, and that's kind of at least helped somewhat as general NBA fans as the Suns have been pretty poor to start the season. But uh, hopefully we can trend back more towards Phoenix Suns basketball and and the uh, sugar on top can just be how fun the NBA has been this year. Yep, absolutely. And on that note, David, could you recap the last few games of the Suns, which are pretty sugary? So a couple of weeks ago, Max, we broke the one win per episode uh, rule that we were going with and uh, broke it in a bad way, not picking up a win at all that week. That was a pretty depressing one. And now we've broken it the other way, Max. We've got three games since we last recorded, which were all wins against Minnesota 107.99, at New York 110-128, and at Boston, 103 to 111. So we've gone up to 8 and 24 on the season. Unfortunately, still last in the division and conference and might be that way for at least a little while longer unless we keep really streaking max. But we are now tied for the third worst record in the league with a couple of teams. And there's even a few more teams in the East within striking distance if we can pick up a few more wins on this streak, Max. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, jinx anything, but I, I feel pretty good that within a few weeks here, we're going to put some of those dregs of the East behind us for good. 
And uh, we might even catch up to uh, one team, which I don't think we're going to talk about later, so I'll mention it now. Minnesota is in a tailspin, and I think we might catch them, actually. Yeah, I think there's a long way to go. There's still 50 games for the Phoenix Suns, and uh, you just got to keep winning, and, and maybe some teams start losing, and those gaps can close pretty damn quickly. But uh, we're still a long way off that, and uh, hopefully we can just count on a few more Suns wins uh, we we may even be able to eke out a, a you know 500 or better record for the month of December with this little run, Max. So uh, that's something to watch over the Christmas and, and New Year break. That would be lovely. Uh, but before we get into raving about this roster, and don't mistake anything we are going to rave, uh, <laughs> we have to get into one last little news item. Uh, after the Knicks game, I think it was, Adrian Wojnarowski reported that the Suns waved... Austin Rivers, David, that was just like, it was, I was already happy, and when I heard that news, man, I think I tweeted it was my favorite day of the year since the uh, opening night went over the map, <laughs> I was so happy. It was pretty funny, you know, I think I tweeted that I'd kind of convinced myself of a role that Rivers could at least play on this team, you know, we did the pod, uh, quite ironic actually that that pod really focused on Rivers because we weren't really sure what the future held with Kelly Oubre on this team, and uh, you know, we kind of shortchanged Kelly a little bit. We're going to make that up to him uh, for this episode, but we raved or, or went on at length about Austin Rivers, and uh, he never ended up coming, Max. Yeah, I don't even want to waste more time talking about him because we, we covered him enough, and he's he's never actually played for the Suns. So let's get into the guys who have been so awesome lately. Uh, let's start with who you just mentioned, who we short-shifted last time, Kelly Oubre. Uh, I would say that so far, Suns fans, at least judging by Suns Twitter, have been more focused on uh, how he looks than how he plays. <laughs> yep. <laughs> There's been a. I, I would say that Suns Twitter has turned into like Zach Efron Twitter or something, <laughs> uh, raving about Kelly Oubre's looks. Sure, he's a very good looking guy, David, but he's also a, a pretty damn good player, it looks like. He is, and uh, I think, you know, we're, we're clutching at straws a little bit as Suns fans if we start. Uh, just looking at, at the overall handsome meter of our team instead of what they can do on the basketball court. But <laughs> thankfully for Kelly, what he can do on the basketball court at least one game into his son's career is also very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think my favorite thing about him in the, in the first game was I didn't realize that he had a 7'2 wingspan when she mentioned in his post-game interview. He's massive. It was, it was obvious in game one. He's, he's huge. He was... Poking away balls, you know, on entry passes, uh, you know, up inbounds plays. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he just gets everywhere. It, when him and Mikel are out there together, it's like it's like having like a, you know, I don't know, spiders out there. It's just hard to get the ball passing around, and that's and that's the kind of way you, you play defense in the modern NBA. It is, and it, it threw another guy in there. The first thing I've got on my notes here is that you know he may actually unlock more than Ariza could in terms of the things we spoke about early on in the year in in terms of what Ariza was going to bring defensively because, you know, Ariza, pretty versatile defender in his own right. But, you know, we saw flashes against Boston of of Kelly, you know, guarding guys like Terry Rozier as the point of attack defender and then, uh, you know, rim protecting, whether it was by accident or not. I I pointed out in our last video series on, on the Twitter account of our pod that, uh, there was, you know, one miscommunication which wound up with Ubre having to cover Williams while Holmes was mm-hmm. switched on to Tatum. And as you said, that seven-two wingspan is very handy when it comes to not only poking balls away and things, but also protecting at the rim. And that's two things that Ariza couldn't do. He he definitely wasn't guarding 
you know, small, quick point guards at the point of attack, and he wasn't really helping in terms of rim protection. And it is only one game. We're probably going to say that a lot on this pod, but uh, it, it was very, very interesting to see Ubre in those two roles in his, you know, 25 minutes or so off the bench. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, one game, but I think in the first game, Ubre was an upgrade over Trevor Ariza in every single way. Uh, one one way in particular that surprised me a little bit. I you know I hadn't watched a ton of Ubre in my time. I saw him in the playoffs a little bit, but I didn't realize how comfortable he was with the ball in his hands. Yeah, uh, there were multiple times where he put the ball on the floor, went to the hoop. And he missed a couple of layups, but at the same time he also you got there pretty easily. Uh, there was one in particular I'm thinking about. It was uh, it was late in the game, fourth quarter. They couldn't get the ball to Aiton. And we'll get to this later. Their offense was centered around Aiton, which was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. But the clock, the clock ticked down. And it became obvious that he had to create something. He just goes right to the basket, gets the gets to the uh, gets to the rim, and gets fouled. And that's something that Ariza just it, he you know he tried to take a little bit. It always went poorly, <laughs> and Ubre did it, and it was great. And I I was impressed by that. Yeah, that that extra length helps. I think, as you said, we we saw Ariza quite often just mm-hmm. crashing into guys as he tried to enter the paint, whereas. Kelly looked a little more comfortable going off the dribble. He is a little, you know, too left-sided. We've we've seen some Wizards people point that out since he's come over to to the Suns. He, he's very kind of, or, or at least a lot more comfortable going left than he he was going right. But uh, he he still does it. I think the one the the play that you're talking about in particular, he was fouled by Tatum going right. Uh, didn't look yep. like he was going to be able to finish the play, but you know got lucky with Tatum fouling him as he missed the layup with with the right hand. But yeah, I was impressed by that. It's always funny watching guys. You know, I commented on kind of pre and post game quite a bit with Ubre is you know how you get a guy to play twenty five minutes and incorporate him within a, a system that he you know knows absolutely nothing about. To be honest, they mm-hmm. they would have got one walkthrough with him or something to maybe show him a few things of where he needed to stand. And you know there was quite a lot of plays where uh, you know he was standing around, not really part of the offensive set because he he didn't know where to be. Uh, but one way that they countered that Max, which you're mentioning, is that they just put the ball in his hand uh, and they played really mm-hmm. fast. They allowed him and probably encouraged him to attack on the break. Uh, there was that one outlet pass from Aiton that I'm sure everyone listening to this remembers. And uh, there was a couple of other times where, again, with his uh, big length and, and help in the paint, he, he kind of took defensive rebounds away from Boston and, and was comfortable kind of moving the ball up the court. So uh, pretty encouraging signs as a, as a one-game sample size. And uh, the rest is just going to be you know acclimatizing uh, to the sets, uh, seeing what kind of playmaking they can get out of him, because that is another uh, probably potential weakness that uh, people have pointed out with Kelly. But um, I think the question needs to be asked, Max, and, and you raised this on very early with me personally, is do we eventually see him start? It's interesting, isn't it? I don't know. I, I, I It's so tough. Because here's the thing. I think it's going to have to be him or Mikel. Yep. But I kind of like them together. Yep. Uh, I don't know. It's really tough. I think I think if Mikel has been sort of you know on and off lately. If he continues to be you know not as good as Ubre because he wasn't in that game and he may just not be right now, it might make more sense that the Suns are trying to win games to kind of focus on Ubre, particularly because they kind of have to decide whether they're going to keep him or not. Yeah. And Mikel, they're going to be keeping long term, so I, I could see why they'd want to you know have Ubre play a lot with Booker and Aiton and be like, hey, is this somebody we want to keep around long term? Because if so, we're probably going to have to pay him $20 million or whatever, which is something I'm sure we'll talk about a lot going forward. 
but what, just one last thing I want to talk about on Ubre, and then you can respond to this or make another point. Yep. It's obviously going to be key whether he can shoot or not. It's key for like every player if they can shoot or not. Mm-hmm. Um, he hasn't shot particularly well in his career, not awfully, but not particularly well. But I will say, you know, I, he was off and on this game shooting, but I was so impressed that uh, late in the game there, I think there was, you know, under a minute left when sort of he got the ball in really a broken offensive set and just had to kind of take almost like a prayer shot, you know, a couple of feet behind the line, but looked ultra confident doing it and just drilled it. He did. And yeah, he just, it, I love shooters with confidence. Like even if he's not shooting at a high percentage, just the willingness to take those uh, shots, particularly moments like that, that's, that's huge. It is huge. And, and you love that he was, you know, willing to take those shots again. Maybe the, um, the freedom of, of coming in and not really knowing the sets that the team and Igor probably, I think Igor even noted in mm-hmm. one of his interviews that he kind of just told him to go out there and do what he does. So it'll be interesting to see whether that tenses up the other way uh, as he gets more acclimatized and is, you know, trying to execute the role on the court that he's supposed to be. But yeah, I think Suns fans who who watched that game and weren't all that familiar with Kelly, you kind of saw the, I guess, best side of Kelly as a shooter in that game. I think he was kind of 50% from three and uh, attacked the basket quite a bit. And, you know, one thing that I will note is I kind of went through all the individual shot charts after that game. Just after watching it by eye, I, I, I really thought that it was a perfect Eeyore type game on offense where it was just all threes and layups. Um, and, you know, it, it appears as though... Uh, Ubre in particular, it was, you know, four shots from outside the three-point line and then everything else was at the rim. Uh, but then I kind of went through everyone else. It's exactly the same. I think Booker works the mid-range a little bit because I think he's got the green light to take whatever shot he likes. Uh, Josh is still throwing quite a bit of mid-range stuff in his game as well. But apart from those two, everyone else, it's it's threes and stuff at the rim. And, and maybe that helps a guy like Ubre. Uh, you know, we've talked about it with Josh uh, a lot in the last kind of couple of weeks of episodes in terms of him, you know, not doing the things that we want to see him do. But, you know, maybe a simplified offense for Ubre, uh, you know, give him the encouragement to take the open threes when they're there and, and otherwise just get him attacking the rim. You know, we had that quote from him. He's, he's He wants to run over and punish anyone who gets in his way. So uh, when you're that big, very noticeable as well, I think, is something that you and I have talked about privately, Max, is you know, when you've got a team full of young guys, it's very noticeable when you've got a, a big you know, NBA-ready body like Oubre. And, and I do think that he may end up starting, and I think Mikhail is the one that'll probably go to the bench as much as we love him. You know, the, the Suns are technically still starting three rookies at the moment as well. So that mm. that might be one reason why Igor decides to, to plug Ubre in there. And with the roster, with the way it sits, at least probably one positive out of that. It, it shouldn't mean a huge dent in Mikhail's minutes or anything like that because they, they, they look to be pretty settled on a nine-man rotation, which... You know, that might be a next a nice segue to, to, to get into some rotation stuff, Max. Yeah, before we go on to Devin Booker, this is that's probably a good time to get into to Igor. I need to I, I've I've been too hard on him. I think you would agree of all people, David, <laughs> this season. But I have nothing not bad not to... even close to the only one though, Max. Not <laughs> that's even close. True. I haven't called for his job or anything, so that's good. That's true. I, I have nothing but amazing things to say about him after the Boston game. Um I think we, we you and I talked uh, with our friend Chris Koffel before the game about 
whether Igor would close with Ubre, mm-hmm. uh, sort of you know that Booker point guard lineup with TJ um, Jackson Nathan or you know or Mikel in place of Jackson, one, one of those guys, and yep. pretty much the entire fourth quarter was that. And I'm so happy that Igor is not doing the thing where he got to slowly get into the thing that works. Like he just went right to what obviously was going to work. I think Igor's realizing now that you know. I only get one chance at this coach thing, yeah. and I'm just gonna play the guys who are good and try to win the fucking game. Yeah, you know, and I'm so happy because it works splendidly. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of been my typical you know defensive ego when this type of thing has come up with him is he's he's kind of struggled to pick the right pieces because uh, there weren't you know a lot of great pieces to choose from early on in the in the mm. season, and he probably. I'm sure would admit himself that he prioritized some things like knowing the game plan and, and being playmakers a little too much to put certain guys in. Now that we've, you know, seeing that he's settled on a basically a nine man rotation and it includes a couple of pieces that he didn't have early on in the season, I think we're seeing him make smarter decisions. Uh if I was to be the nitpicky one with with Igor uh, this time around, I'd probably say that he's still platooning a little bit too much with kind of, you know, having four guys from the bench unit maybe on with just one starter as part of that nine-man rotation. I think, you know, something we spoke about on the last episode was, uh, you know, how much energy and how many hustle guys they have off the bench now. And I just hope that uh, we, we see him kind of mix those things up a little bit and, and kind of mix the effort guys with the starters a little bit more and, uh, you know, not see so much kind of Holmes, Crawford, uh, Ubre if he is still coming off the bench and Josh Jackson all in the lineup together. Yeah, well, the, the team is so fungible now. Yeah. Like, you could just switch in and out people and not lose a beat. Everyone's kind of similar, and that's it's a good thing. Uh, so I totally agree with you. I think that's a, a big thing they need to do going forward. My, my little nitpick... Uh, and I, I don't want to focus on this for very long, but uh, I don't think Booker and Crawford need to play together anymore ever. Yep. It doesn't make any sense to me, so they should stop doing that. But let's let's get away from that. Let's go on to the next player. Let's go on to Devin Booker. Mm-hmm. Not a new player, but newly healthy uh, since the beginning of the season. He hasn't been healthy. And he got off to a blazing start, David, against the Wolves and the Knicks. He wasn't as hot against Boston, but still, he was good. I mean, he was still probably one, you know top three player in the team, even when he wasn't playing well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about Booker's return? What's kind of encouraged you the most about him? That first step, Max, I think I noted it mm-hmm. uh, during the New York game off the top of my head. I think there was, a, there was a couple of plays where we've seen him take guys off the dribble and he looks like that, you know, that person that we saw probably in the first couple of games of the season. Um, you know, mm-hmm. his, his legs weren't a problem early on in the season. It was the, the hand, obviously, is what kept him out. Uh, early on and uh, then the hamstrings became a problem on on two separate occasions and I think you know mostly everyone who was watching closely noted that he'd looked to have lost a step and uh, that appears to be back uh, as far as I can see I've kind of got his numbers up through this little mini streak and you know he's shooting 48% from the field 38% from three uh, nine free throw attempts a game uh, which is very much in line with what we're saying about that first step. I think he's mm-hmm. he, there was a couple of scenarios, particularly in the New York game, where he could just see that he could get himself to the foul line if he wanted to by, by getting fouled on a uh, explosive move. And uh, he's, you know, six rebounds, 5.7 assists, uh, and, and very active, um, which is probably something we noticed in both the, the New York game and the Boston game is uh, this kind of 
uptick in activity from the entire team is rubbing off on guys like Booker and Aiton as well, which is great to see. Yeah, I want to. I'm going to focus mainly on on Devin Booker's defense because I mean we all know he's good at offense. Well, all of us besides uh, Nate Duncan know that he's good at offense. <laughs> uh, but his defense has just been straight up better, David. He's been a lot better on that end. In the in the Boston game, he actually was making plays on defense in the fourth quarter. He had a, a big block on Rozier that unfortunately went, you know, to, <laughs> went to the corner for a wide open three. But it was a good yep. block. He poked away a pass uh, from Rozier to Smart on the perimeter, kind of like anticipating a pass, uh, things that Devin Booker didn't used to do, and just consistently is staying in front of guys to the best of his ability. He's never going to be a great defender. He just doesn't really have the tools, but he is smart and he can do things like anticipate passing lanes uh, and make plays like that. And then he also isn't like such a bad athlete that he can't stay in front of guys, and he's got size. Like, There's really no reason for Devin Booker not to be you know, an average defender, and I think he's starting to show that. And he's proving a point that I made in the past correct, which I made this over and over, which was I'm not going to say that Devin Booker is a bad defender forever until I see him actually on a team where his defense even matters. And now he's on a team, these past few games he's been on one, where the, the level of competition is... If he doesn't play good defense, he will lose. If he plays good defense, he can win. Yeah. And and we're seeing him actually giving effort in that situation, which I was always hoping for, and I'm just so glad we're finally seeing. Yeah, I think we're again small sample size alert on this, but you know, we're seeing a lot of that stuff that we've talked about for probably a couple of seasons and definitely talked about uh early in in this pod's lifespan in terms of get better pieces around Devin Booker and, and you'll see the best of him mm. on the defensive end. I don't think anyone has ever tried to argue that he'd be kind of an above average to elite NBA defender, but he does have size. He does have IQ, as you were saying, and, and you know, 85% of defense is, is effort at the end of the day. And mm-hmm. he's not a negative in terms of his uh, measurements or anything like that. So there was no reason why he shouldn't be at least a, an average NBA defender, particularly when he is surrounded by above average two elite defenders on the floor yep. and with guys that can, you know, switch. I think we saw in both the Knicks game mm-hmm. uh, and the Boston game that, you know, towards the end there, we're, we're seeing lineups where basically one through five can switch. And that'll, you know, gives Booker uh, two things. It, it allows him to switch certain matchups in, in certain situations and, and have an Oubre or a Mikhail take his man. Um, but it also gives him, you know, motivation to hold up his end of the bargain. And, and I think, as you noted, that that's been a big problem with Booker in the past in terms of his defenses. He just hasn't had the motivation there to do it because there hasn't been a, no, yeah, exactly. enough scenarios. It, it, people act like he's Isaiah Thomas, right? They act like there's just no freaking way he can do anything. He, he's not that. He's like six foot six, six foot seven. He just, he's not going to be great. Like you said, though, when he switched on to somebody like you know, somebody great like James Harden, he can at least, like, sort of pretend to, you know, be in the way. He's not going to just get completely run over like Isaiah Thomas does. Yep. Uh, I, I think as bad as Devin Booker was early in his career, I think people were right to hate on his defense to the extent they did. I don't think people were as right as they felt to kind of label him as somebody who could never get better on defense, I guess is kind of the point. Yeah, I agree with that. And going back to the rotation here, Max, I think – you know, one really interesting thing is Eagle has got a lot of pieces to play with now to kind of have offensive and defensive lineups at the end of games. You know, the, a great thing about this mini run is, you know, the, the Minnesota game, uh, the, the Knicks game, 
uh, was probably over a little earlier, but definitely this Boston game, uh, you know, Eagles really had to coach these last quarters and, and get things right. And, you know, he's got pieces to work with. And, you know, I don't think we'll ever see Booker sit uh, for defensive lineup purposes because, uh, you know, A, I don't think you do that to your franchise guy in this situation. And, and mm-hmm. B, I think he's, as we were saying, not as much of a negative uh, as you need a guy to be to kind of pull him out of a, a game uh, for defensive reasons. But the fact that you can now throw him out there with, you know, any one of Melton, Bridges, uh, Jackson, Oubre, uh, Warren, if it's an offensive lineup that you're looking for. And then, you know, for defensive purposes, it looks like uh, they're more comfortable with homes at the moment in kind of crunch situations, particularly if they want to throw that kind of switchy uh, defense out there because Holmes has just been incredible when it comes to um, you know ramping up the defense and, and ramping up the switching on on teams. He's been so so good. Uh, I listened to Bill Simmons' podcast earlier today, and he suggested a Terry Rozier for Rashawn Holmes trade, <laughs> which before the season started would have uh, I been like, oh my god, what we can get Terry Rozier for Rashawn Holmes, and now I'm like. I would never trade Rashawn Holmes for Terry Rozier. No, I don't think there's many Rashawn Holmes trades that I I would do. Um, you know, you probably nope. have to look at him being a throw-in at the deadline if it was a point guard of the future that you were really getting. But you know, with the money that he's on this year, with the advantage of having his bird rights to to re-sign him, and uh, you know the the combo that he seems to possess with Aiton going forward, I think. Uh, he should be a priority priority signing for the Suns. So do I. Uh, one more Devin Booker thing I want to I wanna touch on before we get to Josh Jackson. Yep. David, if I were to ask you, coming into the league every year, Devin Booker, what's the one thing you thought he could do? What would you say? Shoot the basketball. Shoot the basketball. David, Devin Booker is averaging 24 points a game, a little over 24 points a game on about league average efficiency, a little above league average efficiency for his role. And he's shooting, I think, 31% from three right now, 31 and a half, something like that. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I, I just can't wait for him to turn a corner like Nate Duncan's waiting for. I, what's he going to be when he turns a corner, David? <laughs> well, you know, I, I remember raving pretty early on in the year that Igor had turned him into this kind of efficiency monster. And uh, that went away very quickly, both with his injuries and, and teams working out you know, how to defend the Suns because they were playing the pointless guard out there with him most of the time. But, you know, as... This roster beefs up as he's got uh, more capable teammates around him. And, you know, Igor, for for all his faults, I suppose, has been very, very adamant that he wants him to play as a traditional shooting guard. And I think, you know, if he gets a de- decent run of it health-wise and things and the Suns continue to win games, at least every so often, uh, I think we'll see those percentages kind of uh, move up again. But uh, I guess the, the great thing about the shooting, you know, not being so great, so far this season is that it is improvable, uh, but also that he's uh, showcased a few more of his other skills that we were uh, not so confident on coming into this season, Max. Yeah, that's kind of my point, is even with all the crap, with his injury, with his shooting, like like, like the way he's shooting, he's still at I, I league average for the whole league and a little above average for what he, what, you know, his position. Yep. Which is insane. It's, it's just crazy, the kind of shots he takes the, without being able to shoot from three, like... I don't think people understand just how good he's going to be when he finally is like fully healthy and, and gets in a hot shooting stretch going. Dude's going to be, I, I guarantee you, this will be a stretch this season where he's averaging like 35 points a game for a couple weeks 
and he's just on fire, and people are going to be like, what the hell? Holy shit, Devin Booker. He's already averaging kind of, you know, 36 and 6 in this little mini streak, Max. So, God, he's so ridiculous. People are going to start taking notice and seeing what, you know, most Suns fans have, have seen with Booker for some time now. Yep. Okay, enough raving about Devin Booker. Let's rave about somebody who I've been harsh to. I think deservedly, Josh Jackson. He he really hasn't been very good this season, David. I think he's you know, putting it lightly. Uh, yep. I said on Twitter that I thought Josh Jackson had the best game of his entire career against Boston the other night. I got some pushback from people who said that you know the Golden State game last season when he was a rookie with 36 points was better. I don't agree. That was a great game, but that you know the stakes of that game weren't like this. This is a, on the road against a really good team that was trying very hard against us. You know, it's still early in the season. The way he controlled himself in the game, the way he played down the stretch, I thought it was the best game he's played of his entire career. David, what do you think? I, I definitely agree with you. I think the the argument there, you know, I'm sure yeah, everyone went searching for more points per game type games <laughs> that he'd put up to, to push back on you. But uh, I think you the reason you and I are probably both excited uh, by the game against Boston is it's in a role that uh, you can kind of see Josh being going forward on mm-hmm. a winning team. You know, I don't, I, I've kind of lost hope of him. I'm not sure if I ever had it, you know, being a first or second option on a team like that Golden State game because, it, again, it, it's in a no stakes game where you probably end up losing, where Josh has, you know, plus 30 points. Uh, it, it's just not viable in the NBA, him playing that sort of a role. But, you know, what we saw down the stretch in against Boston and uh, throughout the whole game, frankly, is kind of what you want Josh to do, kind of filling in all those little gaps. And he's definitely playing more under control. I think the whole team's playing more under control. I think in this kind of mini four-game run, Max, we're averaging kind of 25 assists to 13 turnovers compared to, you know, 24 assists to more like 17 turnovers for the rest of the season. So I think Josh, probably quite rightly, as we've kept saying, his improvement has been along with as the team's improving. And, uh, you know, he's maybe a little bit of a catalyst there. Yep, I think that's absolutely right. And he is, I think, the best microcosm of just how locked in this team is now. Uh, and my, my play to demonstrate that would be, it was, I think, like halfway. No, not halfway. It was like, there were like three minutes left in the fourth quarter and inbounds pass, not much time left for Boston. Uh, Kyrie kind of tricks him into going to the middle of the key, and there's and back cuts right back to the to the basket. Yeah, and normally that's you know Josh's loss. It's, it's over. That's a layup. But Josh immediately recognizes it, just flies over and blocks uh, Kyrie off the backboard. Just it just shows you how locked in he is. It was probably one of my favorite plays um, from that. I game. loved it. Um, it was my second favorite Josh play though. Can I give you my first favorite? Yes, please. The one it was. I think it was like half. It was a minute thirty left or so like that. Marcus Smart had just hit a huge three in the corner, like basically an absurd three in Josh Axon's face that Marcus Smart has no business hitting, yep. but he made it. Uh, the Suns kind of come down to the other side of the court. I think there are, we're up by five, a minute 30 left. We're kind of rattled. Like, we're not getting any offense going. The ball's going around. It gets to Josh's hands at the top of the key with about five seconds left in the shot clock. Mm-hmm. And, you know, earlier in the season, that's, Josh just takes a stupid pull up there, 100%. No, no other chance. Yep. But he takes, I can't forget who's uh, guarding him, but he takes him off the dribble. Kind of does a jump pass, skip to the corner, to the left for TJ Warren in the corner. Uh, Marcus Smart fouls him uh, for three free throws. But the fact that Josh Jackson made that play, found TJ in the corner rather than try to take a stupid shot, just shows what I'm talking about when I'm talking about how, how great he was in this game. Yep. I've got two points to come back at you with there. Okay. 
first one's actually on TJ just quickly. It's something I want people to to watch out for. TJ, I think, in this uh, summer of improving his shot dramatically, Max, uh, maybe also worked on a little way to get fouled on three-point shots. Mm. Uh, I've noticed that in very late shot clock situations where he's putting up a three, uh, he is more prone to getting fouled or at least having contact happen. I think referees have seen it a lot of the time and, and not actually called fouls at the end of the day. But just, yeah, keep keep an eye out for those really late heaves uh, in the shot clock that uh, TJ's left with the ball. I think he's uh, trying to draw contact and, and get to the free throws like line it. on a lot of those. And uh, that was definitely one of them. I, I remember that one um, in the corner and he was definitely looking for contact from Marcus Smart on that one. So watch out for that one, Suns fans. But just to kind of cap off what we're talking about here with Josh Max, here's his stats from the last four games winning streak. Mm-hmm. And I want you to well, I don't think you even really need to say anything. I think it, it kind of says it all in itself. He's still only averaging 37.8% from the field. However, he's shooting 46% from three. Wow. He's only shooting 50% from the free throw line. He's grabbing 6.5 boards, 2.5 assists, still with two turnovers, 0.8 of a steal, and one block max. However, the most important stat, he is a team high plus 13 in the last four games. So all I want to say on that, and I'm sure you're just about to jump in with something very similar, is that is Josh Jackson to a T. He can affect this team in great ways that are outside of the box score. And it doesn't necessarily come down to, you know, shooting amazingly and and having a ton of assists. It's about playing within himself and and doing what's right for the team. 100%. I think you and I both said multiple times earlier that it's about Josh Jackson just being controlled, being in the right world, you know, just not trying to be the star of the team whenever he comes in and shooting a million times. Like, he doesn't even have to shoot well or, or play well, really. He just needs to do the athletic things he can do and affect the team in that small energy role because he's really freaking good at that stuff, man. He can make crazy plays on defense. He can change games with his energy. And the fact that he seems to be embracing that now, it's going to take a lot of pressure off him because he, if he's like, if he has a role in the NBA just based on that stuff, he can start focusing on just you know improving his efficiency slowly because I, I don't know, David, I... I don't know if I'm just being a homer or whatever, but I think Josh Jackson's set shot three-pointer looks a hell of a lot better right now. It's looking a lot better. As I said, that's one great thing from those kind of stats that I right, yeah. rattled off. He's, he's hitting 46% of those in this in this small sample size. And I think that the more Eagle learns to trust him, the more that that shot is going in, he can ramp up his involvement, you know, a little step by step. You know, I've been pretty big on Igor and the whole, you know, staff behind Igor being great development guys. And this is how you develop guys. You, you pull them right back. It's not about throwing them maximum amount of minutes and saying, go out there and do whatever you want to do. And, you know, some guys are, are going to push back sometimes. You know, I noted on Twitter during the week, being uncomfortable is actually a good thing for development a lot of the times. And, mm-hmm. you know, it means you're going to get bad quotes out of players sometimes and guys pissed off. But the, the long-term benefit of it uh, ends up being much better for the team as a whole. And, you know, I even noted in that fourth quarter uh, in the Boston game, uh, definitely in the Knicks game as well, when they went away from Melton and, and kind of went with Point Booker, to finish games, Josh is the one bringing the ball up the court because Mm -hmm. Igor really wants Booker coming off screens and stuff. So that is something that we didn't see early on in the year and it is probably a sign that Igor is just slowly trusting him a little bit more. And, you know, another thing that I'll note is 
I'm not sure how much we'll actually see Ubre and Mikhail together. I think in you know when you need their defense and stuff, I think that's great. But they're both at least at this stage uh, for Bridges, uh, they're both a little limited in terms of their playmaking and things. And I think that's where Igor is going to keep looking to Josh if they want to run with these kind of big wing heavy lineups towards the end of the game because he, on top of Booker, is one of the other guys who is at least capable of of making plays as the lead ball handler. I've got something for you, David. That that what you just said there, which is all great, just made me think of something on the fly here related to the, the Boston game. You ready for this? Yep. What's the chance that Josh Jackson just kind of turns into Marcus Smart? I mean, Marcus Smart was drafted number five overall. It's supposed to be a point guard of the future yep. for Boston in 2014. Never was really able to shoot, but just learned how to use his energy and his athleticism to just be a just an absolute bulldog maybe that's kind of what josh jackson's headed for yeah and they were talking about marcus smart on on zach lowe's podcast uh, last week in terms of you know a guy if, if you look at his box score numbers uh doesn't deserve to be the kind of guy that you kind of throw into your starting lineup to tur- turn things around for the boston celtics but that's exactly what we're talking about here with josh is his effect on the court could end up being uh, a hell of a lot more than what his numbers show anyone who's not watching. Yep, I'll absolutely take Marcus Smart as an outcome for Josh Jackson at this point. Let's go on to DeAndre Ayton. Some ways, David, we've kind of buried the lead a little bit. DeAndre Ayton was incredibly good in the Boston game and has been a lot better lately in general. Uh, he had a huge statistical game in against Boston in a lot of ways, but to me, and I know to you too because we talked about it, one statistic stuck out uh, a lot, and that's that he grabbed eight offensive rebounds. Yep, and something he's been doing a little more and more. You know, over the last four games winning streak, he's averaging four and a half offensive rebounds. If I'm looking at team stats, one thing I would point out is that before the little mini game stretch that we're on, we're averaging 41 boards. of which were offensive. In the last four games, Max, we're up to 47.8 boards a game and 12 of those being offensive rebounds. And that is almost entirely DeAndre Ayton. And he's kind of improving every game, Max. It's really, really impressive. I I totally agree. There was one. This one wasn't offensive, but uh, it caused Eddie Johnson to get all excited. And it was in the middle of the fourth quarter. And DeAndre just went like, it seemed like he went 13 feet in the air just to manhandle a rebound and bring it down. I think Eddie Johnson said something like, no one else is getting that rebound. And that's, that's what you want to see at Aiden. Like, he has such, obviously, his gifts are insane. He's a, yeah. uh, one of the most gifted rebounders I've ever seen in my life. But you just want to, if he just throws his like attitude into his rebounding, he just becomes an absolute force. But uh, beyond the rebounding, what I really want to discuss with Aiden, because I thought this was the most significant thing uh, about him from the game, was sort of the way the team... Booker wasn't playing very well offensively in, in yep. the fourth quarter of the Boston game. I think it, it's pretty clear. Which is great in itself that they got that win, I should Yes, they still won. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but when Booker was not playing well, kind of the default there was to go to Aiton, and it, it works to an extent, particularly when... The play I liked the most from Aiton was... Uh, it was after Rozier hit those two big threes in a row, and it sort of seemed like the Suns were going to let it slip away. Uh, they call a timeout, and right right the first play back and come to timeout, they, they get Aiton in the post, and he just calmly collects himself and just nails this beautiful jump hook yep. right in the post. The, the Boston had no chance of stopping it, and it, that was the one play you see that, and you're just like, oh, man, this guy is different. 
Yeah, and he's starting to realize that he's different. I think that's the biggest thing here, Max, is mm-hmm. probably hasn't happened as quick as some people hoped or, or some expected. But again, I hate to harp on development and things, but you know, I automatically think of everyone wanting DeAndre to shoot three-pointers and, and Igor kind of coming out and saying, I'll allow him to shoot three-pointers when he's got... Uh, you know, averaging 10 dunks a game and he's showing me that he can do everything that he needs to down low. And I think (laughs) that's how they've approached DeAndre. I think they've said from the start is, you know, you're a a huge monster presence inside. You need to play like it. And I think he's starting to see the results of when he does play like that. The the offensive rebounds is one thing. Um, You know, we're kind of fourth in the league on offensive rebound percentage in this uh, little mini stretch compared to being, I think, 27th or something like that for for the entire season but you know that's just one thing I think one thing that you just noted on is he's realizing that he can kind of finish over the top of anyone mm-hmm. if especially if he can kind of give someone a bump and get them on their heels uh, I think he's realizing how he can affect shots you know his block numbers still aren't great but he's definitely been much more of a bigger presence inside and uh, the, the Suns are protecting the paint a hell of a lot better than what they were early on in the season, which is probably another reason why we're uh, in more games. I think we're kind of ninth in points in the paint versus kind of 25th on the season. So Aiton is uh, pulling his weight, Max, and uh, he's another big reason that they're on this little mini run and another big reason why it looks, at least for now, like the Suns have turned things around a little bit. It really has. And uh, on the Aiton point, on him getting better defensively, I think the statistics bear it out. Uh, I can't remember the exact statistics on it, but his block percentage has gone up significantly each month. Yep. Uh, it's still not incredible, it's, but it's real, It's gotten a lot better. Mm-hmm. And uh, his defensive field goal percentage at the rim uh, early on was hovering around 70, very bad. But I think in this recent month, it's been like in the like mid to high 50s, which is pretty good. Yeah, and you can, you can see it watching the games. Again, if you're just looking yep. at the, the box scores, he, he's not having massive block numbers or anything like that. But, you know, we stopped looking just at steals and blocks to assess defense a, a long, long time ago. It, it's right, so right. much more than that. And they're really getting DeAndre to play within himself. Um, I think they've slowly been able to show him how he can play good defense without uh, getting blocks or, or things like that. And uh, he, he's been pretty impressive. And, you know, another guy that I'm sure we'll touch on in a minute it has probably helped him in that, I think, is Rashawn Holmes. I yes. think he sees a guy like Rashawn go out there and give it his all. And I think he's slowly learning that you kind of got to leave everything out there on the court. And uh, he's still a very, very far away from it. But, you know, we're maybe starting to see that Kevin Garnett type of attitude where he's realizing that he can't just mail it in every game. He, you know, he's really only got an advantage over guys with his size if he brings uh, the mentality with it at the same time, Max. Yeah, 100% agree. I, I've been a notorious sort of Aiton skeptic, I guess. Uh, but I mean, I couldn't have been happier with him in the Boston game. And just recently, it, he's been really, really good. I, I really have nothing bad to say. I hope we keep seeing it from him. And and I actually have a lot of faith we are going to keep seeing it from him just because I think – so people – so I, I yelled on Twitter uh, some obscenities about how the Suns have turned this thing around finally. Yep. And a couple of people asked me, like, uh, why are you so confident and, and now this is the time they turn it around? And the reason why I'm so confident about it is because this isn't just like them having a hot shooting streak or, you know, Devin Booker's not scoring 40 points a game and just carrying them or whatever. This is, they're winning these games because they're actually giving energy on defense. And I I just noticed just an obvious change in the way they're playing. 
on that end. Uh, Ubre getting in also gives me more faith because now I know they have even more guys who can do the swishy thing. And that just rewatch the fourth quarter of the Boston game and the way that those six guys, uh, the guys who finished the game and then Mikel before he got switched out. Mm-hmm. Like when you have those those guys on the floor together, they will be able to play defense like that. They will be able to switch like that. That's going to happen against every single team. And as long as they're doing that and competing that way, the growth is going to continue. And that's why I'm so confident that this thing is turned around. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you kind of ended on that point here because I wanted to point out that if you look at, uh, you know, I've been rattling off a lot of comparison stats of this little mini streak versus the rest of the season. And if you look at percentages, as you mentioned, in the four games versus the percentage of the season, they're pretty much the same, Max. It's kind of 45% from the mm-hmm. field and 35% from three. So as you said, this isn't just a hot streak in terms of shooting, and it's certainly not a hot streak in, in terms of uh, Devin Booker, I guess, pulling out all the wins for us, particularly in the Boston game. So that is a, a great point. I think it's just activity overall is up. I think deflections in November were kind of 17 a game. Now they're up in December of kind of more like 24. Steals are up, a, a you know, one steal a game. Blocks are up one block a game. The boards are up, as I, I mentioned earlier. Everything activity-wise is what's leading to this turnaround and mm-hmm. uh, turnovers are down. So I think, you know, Igor has noted in every post-game interview that he's done over the last couple of weeks that you know turnovers are coming down activities up he keeps talking about deflections he keeps talking about the players understanding how they can actually affect the game down the stretch we're in more clutch situations down the stretch and you know the results are, are pretty good so far in terms of them being able to land the plane as Igor loves to say and you know one of my biggest concerns on the season and particularly with the Ariza trade was there being quite a hole at power forward but, you know, when we were talking about the Ariza signing before the, you know, the season started, we noted that there's not a lot of big brute power forwards in the league anymore. And no. you can kind of get over it with activity. I think we weren't getting away with it early on in the season because we weren't getting enough effort out of everyone. But, you know, for all those rebound numbers and stuff to be up, yes, it is Aiton, but it's also, you know, guys like Jackson, uh, guys like Bridges, um, even TJ Warren's getting involved on the boards. And now you add in a guy like uh, Ubre Jr., as we noted in the Boston game, grabbed a, a lot of defensive rebounds. Uh, you, you can fill that void just with effort and activity. And I think that's the most encouraging thing. And I think it, it shows that there's a real mindset switch here, which is why you know people like yourself can say quite confidently Yes, there'll be some down games still. Yes, there'll be some hiccups along the road. But it really looks like the mentality of this team has changed, Max. Yeah, it, it definitely has. It's not, it's not even a prediction. The mentality has changed. It, it could change back. You never know. There could be an injury or something. But as long as these guys stay healthy, I, I am pretty convinced they're going to keep playing this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to mention one more guy before we go to Did You Know? Because I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Anthony Melton. Yep. Because he's my guy. Yeah, a little overshadowed in the Boston game, particularly just because of you know the fourth quarter he didn't play in it, Ubre and stuff. He is still very limited offensively, but when you when you talk about this whole you know effort thing, this whole getting deflections, this you know constantly just giving your all on the floor, Belton epitomizes that. Uh, I think his insertion into the starting lineup kind of started this trend. I would say towards the team playing this way. Yeah, I'm not gonna say it's all because of him, but I think it, you know I think he definitely helped push him that way. I hope that he keeps playing as the starting point guard in a sort of a token way, but still, it's important to set that tone. 
Uh, also important not to have Booker play point guard the entire game. Agreed. It's, it's nice to have Melton start that way. Um, you know, I'd like to see Melton get a little more time if he's playing well. Um, but as of right now, I have very little complaints about how he's being used, and I'm just happy that he is a uh, signature part of this rotation. Yeah, he's still playing, you know, kind of 20 minutes a night, which isn't a lot for a, a starting point guard, but it is kind of a faux starting point guard position. It's a lot for a number 46 in the draft rookie. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think, as you said, and as we noted early on in the in the pod, Igor has come around a little bit to, you know, prioritizing some things that the team really needs over, you know, a guy who can run the sets properly and, and things like that. I think he's still playing him on a pretty short leash, which is fine. Again, that's development. That's... Uh, earning your minutes uh, in the last couple of games, particularly because the Suns have won. No one is really complaining about Melton's roll down the stretch or anything like that. But, you know, maybe the last time Austin Rivers gets a mention on this podcast, Max, I think his waving and, and the, you know, theories around why he was waved probably only means good things for DeAnthony Melton because it probably means, at least I know you and I think this, that. Uh, and a few other people have mentioned it, uh, Callan Olsen was probably the first one who brought it up, was that uh, they they weren't willing to give Rivers the starting spot. And, and that's probably, a, you know, a little bit of a vote of confidence for Melton going forward. Yep, it absolutely is. Um, it's also a vote of confidence for me and our, our team that <laughs> they did that. Because, uh, you know, you you almost expect the Suns to not want to look stupid uh, and, and just start him anyway, but they didn't. They stuck to their guns, and that encourages me. Before we move on, Max, just on the on the back of that, can I? I'll just give you know a little bit of a uh, positive towards the Suns and the Suns front office for all the for crap going around, for all the rumors, for all the stories written about the front office. I'm sure many of which are true, but I'm also sure many of which uh, are a little bit of hyperbole, um, particularly around the Chandler and Ariza scenarios. This front office and this team doesn't appear to give a shit what the general NBA media covering the team seems to think about what they're doing. And they're sticking to their guns. Uh, the, the whole team appears to be uh, in line with each other about what this team needs to do going forward and, and how they need to develop the team. Uh, I've really liked that there seems to be a consistent message between Igor and James Jones whenever they speak publicly. And, you know, I just wanted to note that, you know, whilst there's been some frustrating times and things haven't happened quite as quick as maybe we'd hoped, they are kind of moving in the right direction. And, and maybe these latest wins are a, a nice result of that, Max. Yeah, I mean, hey, if these last four games are any indication of where we're headed, uh, I can't criticize the front office at all because you know, the, the McDonough era for the past three years was, you know, all awful. And the season started awfully, but, you know, if this is the sign of things to come, then it's a, it's a giant turnaround. But, uh, Dave, let's go ahead and get into Did You Know before we end up having a two-hour podcast. Let's do it. Max, I'm sure you and the listeners know by now that the Suns are on a four-game winning streak for the first time since March 2015. Mm. But did you know only one member of the current Phoenix Suns team was on the roster at that point in time? Can you tell me who that was? I believe his name is TJ Warren. It is, of course, TJ Warren, who was a rookie playing between 15 and 20 minutes a night on that team off the bench. He scored 6, 6, 4, 
and eight points in those four wins for the Suns. The third win in that streak came on March 21st against the Knicks, and the last win in that streak came against Dallas on March 22nd, 2015. The Suns then went on to lose five in a row, hopefully that doesn't happen this time, before their next win came on April 4th. And that happened to be their last win of the season, Max. Now, I want you to remember those dates for me, if you can. March 21, March 22, and April 4. We'll get back to those a little later. The reason I started with TJ Warren, though, Max, is because the Suns currently have 11 players on their roster who were not yet in the NBA when TJ joined the league. They are Evans, Melton, Okobo, King, Bridges, Ayton, Jackson, Bender, Holmes, Booker, and the newest Phoenix Sun, Kelly Oubre Jr. In fact, the addition of Oubre means the Suns now have three members of the 2015 draft class, Booker, Holmes, and Oubre. Remember that for later too, Max. Okay. After drafting TJ with number 14 in 2014, the Suns then drafted Booker at 13 a year later and have recently traded for Oubre, a number 15 pick, and Holmes, a number 37 pick, which means Phoenix now have a pick 13, 14, and 15 on the roster in Booker, Warren, and Oubre. But a bit more on Oubre quickly. He was originally from New Orleans and moved to Texas as a nine-year-old after Hurricane Katrina. I did not know that, Max. As I mentioned, he was drafted at number 15, just one shy of the lottery, and after playing one year at Kansas before declaring. And perhaps, Max, maybe being picked outside of the lottery and being from Kansas was a good thing. Max, how many Kansas lottery picks come to mind in the last 10 years? Total or just on the Suns? <laughs> Total, just some names. Can you think of any names? Uh, Josh Jackson, I know. He from Kansas. Yes. Oh, man. I got to think back, man. Um, give me a hit. Give me a team. Uh, one of your favorite plays on the Philadelphia 76ers was a Kansas lottery pick. Oh, 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 Joel Embiid, yeah. And then Andrew Wiggins, okay. Exactly. So you rattled off a few there, but they had a great run in the late 90s and mid-2000s with Paul Pierce, Drew Gooden, Nick Collison, and Kirk Heinrich. But here's their lottery guys since Max. Julian Wright at number 13 in 2007. (laughs) Brandon Rush at number 13 in 2008. Xavier Henry at number 12 in 2010. Dude, I don't even remember that person. What? <laughs> Cole Aldrich at number 11 in 2010. Mm. couple of guys we do know. Marcus Morris at 14 and Markeith Morris at 13 in 2011. Who? Thomas Robinson at number 5 in 2012. Mm, I thought he was going to be good, Dave, but that was a miss by me. Ben McElmore, number 7 in 2013. Then Joel Embiid, as you mentioned, at number three. Andrew Wiggins at number one in 2014. And the first guy you mentioned, Josh Jackson, at number four in 2017. So Jesus, that is not encouraging for Josh. Josh, try to buck that trend, man. Not a great little recent history there for Kansas lottery picks, but... Being drafted in 2015 means Kelly is due to become a restricted free agent after this season, and he joins a host of recent ex-sons who were traded to the team in that situation. Bledsoe, Knight, and a fellow player from Louisiana, Alfred Payton. Now to finish, 
Those dates, Max, can you remember them? Yeah, you said March 21st, 22nd, and then April 4th, is that right? Correct. So here we go. March 21st, 2015, the third win in the last time that the Suns had a four-game winning streak, and it came against the New York Knicks. Also, the same day that Rashawn Holmes played his last game for Bowling Green in college before being drafted in the 2015 NBA Draft. March 22nd, 2015, the fourth win in the streak that came against Dallas. Also, the same day that Kelly Oubre Jr. played his last game for Kansas in college before being drafted in the same 2015 NBA draft. April 4, 2015, the next time the Suns won a game after that streak and their last win of the season. Also, the same day that Devin Booker played his last game in college before <laughs> being drafted in the 2015 NBA draft. How the hell do you go with this crap, man? <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week, Max, and I'm looking forward to doing a little around the association stuff before we finish off the episode. Man, that was a lot of math. My head's spinning. <laughs> that was cool. Okay, so yeah, we're going to do a little around the league. Uh, we're going to start with a trade that we would like to see, you know, kind of help some teams that are struggling in some way or other. David, how about you start? I'll start, and I'll start by admitting that this trade idea would have looked a hell of a lot better about a week ago, Max, but I looked at a team in the West and a team in the East. Okay. Dallas has Dirk Nowitzki playing his last season. They can't trade Dirk, Maya- David. <laughs> <laughs> Miami has Dwayne Wade playing his last season. Mm-hmm. Both players need to make the playoffs in their final seasons, Max. We should see it happen. We've got to see it happen. Okay. Uh, in Dallas, Dennis Smith Jr. and Luca don't seem to fit all that well together. It's early, but I agree. Miami are desperate for young assets. Goran and Luca mm. have a history together. Mm. So, as I said, a week ago this would have looked a little better before Goran went down, but he is kind of looking at four to six to weeks off, which is around the NBA trade deadline. So, I came up with a little something that was around... Uh, Goran going to Dallas and Dennis Smith going to Miami. And I think the way you would get that done is you would also send Harrison Barnes to Miami, which would help their Mm. push for the playoffs. And in return, Dallas would get Josh Richardson back with Goran uh, for their little playoff run. So probably not a great trade now with Goran's health. And I'm sure there'd be some Miami fans who wouldn't want to give up Josh Richardson. But you get a player like Dennis Smith Jr. and where he was chosen in the draft, I think you've got to give something up too. Goran and Barnes, I think, both have two years at around the same money left. So just better fits with new teams, Max. You'd really have to believe in Dennis Smith Jr. to make that trade, but it's not insane. Um, I mean, Miami's, they're so bad this year. They're going to have to play for the future. So I, and, and by the way, spoiler, my, my trade will involve them. Ooh. But uh, I, 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 like, I love the idea of putting Luka and Goran together again. That's, that's just the most fun thing ever. It would give them a, you know, a little push for the playoffs, I think, because they're, they, you know, they're going to need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd love to see Dirk go out, even if it is just a first-round exit. But uh, you know, that's, that's a fit that everyone knows already works, but uh, very dependent on, on Goran's health, unfortunately. Yeah, what is he out now? Like a couple months is that they, I saw them say? They're saying four to six. So you'd be trading for a guy who's probably hasn't returned to the NBA yet because the, the trade deadline's quite early this year, around Feb 7. But 
uh, yeah, still still something to, to watch, maybe even just with those teams in terms of trying to make the playoffs for their uh, respective retirees, Max. Yeah, I certainly think those two teams are our teams to watch in the trade market, which is why Miami's involved in mine. Give it, give it to us. So mine's, mine's complicated. It's a three-teamer. Okay. Uh, we got three teams that I think two of them are obviously struggling and need, and need help. Those are Utah and Miami. Third one, not as obviously, but I still think needs to make a move, and that's Portland. Okay. Okay, here we go. I'm, I'm going to go through who each team gets, and then I'll talk about the rationale, and we'll see what you think. Let's do it. Utah gets C.J. McCollum from Portland, Kelly Olynyk from Miami, and then some salary filler from Portland uh, to make it work. Mm-hmm. Portland gets Josh Richardson from Miami, Jay Crowder from Utah, James Johnson from Miami, and Royce O'Neal from Utah. Miami gets Ricky Rubio expiring from Utah, Derek Favors expiring team option from Utah, and then a pick from Utah, probably a, a first-round pick. Interesting. I, I, I've been writing it down as you've been going, but keep, yeah, give me your rationale, and okay. then I'll, I'll give you some thoughts. It might make more sense, yeah. Our listeners can't get all that in their minds, so let me explain kind of what the point is. So... Well, I'll start with Miami, because Miami might be the one that's the, the weirdest at first. Miami's doing this because they dump $40 million in salary next year. Yep. And then the next year after that, they're basically just, just off any salary at all. It, for, for them, it's like a reset. They're betting on the fact that they're Miami, and they can, they can get some free agents. And yep. they get off James Johnson, who's like four years left at $14 million a year. They get, they get off uh, Josh Richardson, the, the, with a, the price they give to give up. But even him, he's on a deal for like four more years. Uh, and they get off Kelly Olenek, who's like, I think, three yep. or four more years at like 14. So they, mm-hmm. they just get off a ton of salary. It's basically like a blow it up trade for them. Uh, Portland, I, I don't think the CJ McCollum, Damian Lillard thing is like long to last forever. And I think the way you build around Damian Lillard is you just put like just insane defense around him. And not only that, but you get Josh Richardson. So you have like a good, kind of offensive secondary piece, perfect backcourt mate with Damian Lillard. You get Crowder and James Johnson. And Royce O'Neal to play around him. And you just kind of say, hey, we're going to just go with Damian Lillard. And that's what we're going to do here. And then Utah, obviously, they don't get free agents. So they just they commit to C.J. McCollum as kind of like the shooting guy they need next to Mitchell. Mm-hmm. They get Kelly Olenek there to spread the floor yep. with uh, Gobert. Fit a little better than, than uh, Favors does. And, yeah, they, they just kind of commit to that. What do you think, David, all around? I think it's a... Uh, uh... You know, it's a logical trade from all angles. I think the way you explain it makes a lot of sense. If Miami drop off a cliff in the next kind of 15 to 20 games, I think this is the kind of move that they would look to do because to get better in the future, they just need to lose a whole heap of salary. And uh, a guy like uh, Josh Richardson might be the, the prize that they have to give up in order to do that. Um, I like CJ in Utah. I think I've even noted on this pod in this segment before that I think he fancies himself as a little more of a point guard than Portland allow him Mm -hmm. to be. So that kind of fit uh, with Donovan Mitchell, with CJ being more of the point rather than him being the two guy next to Lillard uh, is an enticing one for him. And, you know, Kelly Olynyk is a a decent player to add to that Utah team. I think the favors Gobert experiment uh, is done and dusted after this season. So they would be uh, smart to move on there. Uh, Portland was probably the one that I was, you know, scrunching my face up a little bit as you were uh, explaining the trade to begin Mm -hmm. with, just because it gives them even more, you know, wing rotational pieces. But, you know, they are playing guys like Jake Lehman and stuff this year. So it would be a, a... a total talent upgrade. And I think, 
in CJ trade scenarios, you're probably always looking to get a guy uh, who's maybe not quite as good as CJ McCollum, but plays the same position and, and has a little bit of upside. And, and Richardson definitely ticks those boxes. So yeah, it, it's ticks. He also fits better with Lillard in a lot of ways. because He also fits a, a hell of a lot better. So yeah, ticks all around for me and, and something that, uh, you know, we should definitely look out for. Maybe, you know, it's hard to nail these trades specifically, but I just think in terms of what those three teams should be looking to do potentially, particularly if Miami don't go my kind of route of trying to make the playoffs for, for Dwayne's last season. Um, Yeah, I think you've come up with a good one there. Thank you. Yeah, that's probably the rub right there, right, is that Miami's not going to... They have Pat Riley running them. They're not going to blow it up, so... It's not going to happen, but I think Miami should be trying to do something like that. I'll repeat something I think I've said on this pod as well before, just because I want to get it off as many times as possible. Riley is going to run that franchise into the ground and then retire. Yep. That's 100% what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, kind of like how Daryl Moore is going to run Houston to the ground and then not retire, but move on to a different team. Ooh, that's, that's another, a, story. another story altogether, one that we can maybe get on because uh, another episode. I've, I've got some takes on that one too. Well, that'll be fun. We should do that. But uh, for now, let's go on to our next league-wide thing. This is going to be uh, sort of like a stars rising, stars falling sort of thing. We're going to say one person we're going to welcome to the All-Star game this year. Mm-hmm. And someone we're going to say farewell to probably forever. So, David, you want to go first? Yep. And I'm going to do mine together here because they're kind of intrinsically linked for a few reasons, which I'll get into. Mm. So, I am going to say Mike Conley and DeMar DeRozan. Wow. Okay. I did not think you were going to go there. So... You think Mike Conley's with the All-Star game, huh? I think the narrative is building. He kind of mentioned it on Zach Lowe's podcast a little while back. There's been a few articles I've seen about how he deserves a spot. Uh, he said that he'd even try and dunk if he made the All-Star game. So I'd love to see that. Uh, I think this is a fascinating one because I can see it shaping up where they're basically fighting for the last guard spot. And I think it's just a really fascinating thing in terms of narrative with these things being very important because if you look at DeRozan's numbers he's having pretty much an identical season to his last season in Toronto where he was an all-star if anything his percentages and assists are actually up on that last season Uh, but the Spurs are you know 17 and 15 no one's really into him this year Uh, and I think he might kind of find out what it's like to not have a whole country in Canada behind you uh, with all-star selections versus being on a mm. you know run-of-the-mill team hidden in uh, the middle of Texas in San Antonio. So that one's really interesting for me, particularly if you look at his numbers versus the votes he get. He might, he might be a little unlucky there. And I think Conley, his, his percentage numbers are down, but other than that, he's kind of having his best season overall. And funnily enough, you know, the Grizz are around the same record as the Spurs, but just have or, you know, seem to have a better narrative around them at the moment. So it's probably one where I think all-star voting opens Christmas Day, if my memory serves me correct. So, you know, these guys aren't going to be voted in um, by the public, but it's really going to depend where their two teams go in the next couple of months before the coaches pick out the the rest of the rosters. But yeah, that's my one because I I could see it going in a direction where Conley gets his first all-star appearance and DeRozan uh, misses out, Max. Well, I I just love it. I love what you did there. Uh, I'm jealous of your picks because they're way more fun than mine. (laughs) Especially Conley. I love Mike Conley and it would make me so happy to see him be an all-star. He deserves it. Yep. 
Man, so mine are going to seem so lame and obvious after years. I, I was almost <laughs> had the balls to say De'Aaron Fox. I really freaking wanted to say De'Aaron Fox. He doesn't have the, he the counting stats, but uh, I think in a lot of ways. If he, he was in the East, if he was in the East, Max. Yeah, and also, like, man, if Sacramento keeps winning games, at a certain point you have to just reward the guy who's the reason, right? That's very true. Uh, but that's not who I picked. I went super obvious and easy. I went Nikola Jokic. Yep. Uh, he's going in there, and he's going to be there for a while, so that's that's not hard. Uh, and then I, I went with a, I guess maybe slightly less obvious, but I think one that is going to be gone forever. Al Horford made five All-Star games in his career. Ooh. Uh, great player. Uh, been awesome. Was incredible in the playoffs last year. Outplayed Joel Embiid. He's been struggling to stay healthy this year. He's getting up there. I, I think his run is done in the All-Star game, David. That's not as boring as you made it out to be, because I did not think of him. Uh, I think we're currently seeing Boston in a real... A tough spot, and, and Al Horford's absence is probably a major reason for that. So yeah, and if he also if he stays on Boston, he's going to be sort of overshadowed by the other guys on that team. I think in terms of All Star stuff. So I, it's not really a shot at Al Horford as a player because I really like him as a player. It's more Definitely. just about I don't think he's going to be voted into the All Star team or, or even voted by the coaches onto the All Star team anymore. That's a good one. Should we go to number three? Yep, let's do it. You can start. This is going to be what we're excited about for the rest of the season that we didn't necessarily expect to be excited about okay this one is probably more a timing thing i didn't expect to be this excited about this story this early on max but it is the anthony davis to the la lakers story that seems that one's heating up heating right now yeah it's it's right now i expected it to be in the off season i think more than likely any trade is still going to be in the off season if not even later than that because i think new orleans will uh, hold on for as long as they can, but not unexpected at all. But I, I'm really fascinated by it, and I'm fascinated by it for two reasons. I've been on the Lakers, as you know, kind of not wasting LeBron's prime, a year of his prime, and, mm-hmm. and kind of making an all-in move, particularly if he can show that he can you know, make them a playoff team or a, a home court playoff team, and then the, the front office kind of reward him with a big trade, an all-in move. So I think it's unlikely that Nola would, would trade Davis, but you know, if these stories keep swirling, they keep pushing out things that it's not going to be about money and things like that, maybe New Orleans just... Uh, you know, bite the bullet and, and go early on a Davis trade, and particularly if their team's not looking all that good for the playoffs. But a, another reason, and the second reason I find it equally fascinating, is if New Orleans do decide to trade him early, which would probably be a very bad idea. I know where you're going with this. The CBA rules mean Boston are actually frozen out of the conversation and can't even get in with this treasure chest of picks that they have because they cannot trade for Anthony Davis while Kyrie Irving is on his current contract with the Celtics. So as I said, probably like my first trade one up top, very unlikely to happen, but the jungle drums are beating and the clutch link is obviously there. They're the ones pushing these things. Uh, LeBron James's agency that he has a piece in and is represented by and now that Anthony Davis is also represented by Uh, and from a Phoenix point of view with my selfish hat on it also means great things for both Drew Holiday and Nikola Mirotic who is a free agent at the end of this season so yeah we'll take both we'll trade for one and sign the other so uh that's an interesting point you bring up the Boston thing I have heard that point made and uh it's funny, I was going to say, well, New Orleans would have to be stupid too, and then I realized you and I had just talked privately about the fact that New Orleans is stupid. 
but they'd have to be <laughs> stupid to not trade to Boston because they can't trade until July 1st. Like, just wait till freaking July 1st. <laughs> Anthony Davis can't leave yet. Yeah, and the pressure would really have to get ramped up for them to to not do that. So that's why, you know, it it's probably not going to happen, but it's going to be a fascinating story to, to watch for however long it takes. Oh, it's going to be a great story. In fact, uh, they're playing each other right now, the Lakers and the and the Pelicans. Do you think if the Pelicans lose this game, which they're currently down three in the fourth quarter, that uh, that means David has to go? Will he just stay there? <laughs> yeah, the, the Davis Bowl. <laughs> the Davis Bowl. Which bowl is probably a, an apt word, because I read that he was uh, throwing up into the toilet bowl before the game and wasn't sure if he was going to play. Oh really? If yikes! Well, he has uh, twenty six, sixteen, and five right now, so I guess he's okay. <laughs> okay, so I'll get into mine. Um, so we all knew the West was going to be fun, and I I predicted before the season that it was going to be really tight, um, and it is, but I, in a way that I didn't expect at all. And so my thing is going to be sort of like we expected the West to be fun, but not in the way it's going to be fun. And the way I'm excited uh, for it to be fun is I'm excited to see these teams that we thought were going to be good. Houston, Utah, New Orleans, San Antonio, that, that kind of r- rung of teams. Yep. Like, is that team, are those guys going to go on a, like a giant run to come back into this? Or are the surprise teams, the Clippers, the Grizzlies, the Kings, and uh, the Mavericks going to kind of hold them off? I'm kind of looking at I'll, those. I'll two stop you. Teams. Stop you quickly. You're not giving yourself enough credit here, Max. You may not have got everything about the West right, but Houston look horrible right now, and OKC look very, very good. So, in terms of the hottest takes that you came with in those predictions, uh, you, you're looking pretty good right now. Well, thanks, David. I also had Nola third, and they're and then they're kind of awful. But yeah, it's 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 a hard division to predict, a hard conference to predict, and. Uh... And yeah, it's it's gonna be fun to watch this down the stretch, though, don't you think? Just to see these kind of these old guard teams. I mean, Utah's not really an old guard team, but you know, the teams we thought were gonna be great, really just kind of aren't. And the teams that we, I mean, no one saw. I didn't predict the Clippers and the Grizzlies and the Kings, especially the literally David. No one thought the Kings were gonna be good. <laughs> no one. We thought that we would be better than the Kings, yes. and that is still not just we. Very, everyone thought the Suns were better than the Kings. Everyone. Yep. And I think you put it really well. I think everyone saw that it was going to be a weird year in the West. Uh, I don't think anyone could have totally nailed exactly how it's happened. But uh, you're right. It's going to be a really fascinating thing to see. And, and probably fascinating around some of the things we've you know, talked about here. We're, we're bringing up the trade deadline. Uh, we're bringing up all-star selections because they're about to all be mm-hmm. in the news very soon or for the next couple of months. And that's going to be dictated a lot by what you're saying here with these surprise teams being the ones that may be looking to make trades to get even better and maybe having some first-time All-Stars. And another guy who came to my mind when we were looking at the All-Star stuff was Tobias Harris. With yeah, that's Clippers. another thing that uh, is not a very hard prediction to make. You just alluded to. The NBA is just going to own the news cycle and the headlines, like January onward. It's going to be an insane year for the NBA. Yep. It's really going to start to... It's already sort of taking over pop culture, but it's going to go to another level, I think. Yeah, I mean, I miss a lot of that uh, being from where I'm from and and really only fully interested in the NBA. I kind of curate my own, you know, exposure to those things. But, you know, I am aware and and do see, you know, the drop-off in in the coverage of things like the NFL and stuff as the NBA really starts to heat up. And uh, they're definitely owning the, the sports landscape um, as far as it going forward is concerned. Yeah, the NBA is absurdly healthy. Uh, a bit of a tangent, but I just, you know, even compared to 10 years ago, the NBA was not, not an afterthought. It was still a big sport, but it was 
clearly way behind the NFL and you know even behind baseball and now it's overtaken baseball I think pretty pretty clearly and in terms of just like owning headlines and stuff it, it will never get the ratings the NFL gets but it the, in terms of owning headlines star power the NBA is it's second to none at this point yep and that brings us to the end of those three little sections, Max. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, we raved at the Suns and we raved about the NBA. We're raving about everything, David. <laughs> Are you ready to rave about three, seven seconds or less questions yes, from me? Yes, I'm excited to get some from you. It's been a while. Uh, we're about to do seven seconds or less for those of you who are first-time listeners. One of us asks the other three questions for which the other only has seven seconds or less to answer, and for which he has not prepared. David, this week is, as we alluded to, asking me the questions. David, hit me. All right, there's a bit of a theme with all these as we like to do, so I will hit you with the first one. The Suns win a title in 2022, Max. Okay. Which two current Suns wings would be most likely to be on a championship winning team? Jackson, Bridges, Warren, Oubre. And that's in Phoenix. I'm picking two of them. Yep. Out of those four. Okay. Oh, man. Jesus. I'm going to say Mikkel Bridges and guess what, everybody? I'm, I'm on board. TJ Warren. Ooh. All right. See you later, Josh and Kelly. Nice to know no, you. No, I love you guys, too. <laughs> Question two. Keeping that theme going. Before winning the title, the Suns have to make the playoffs, of course. Let's <laughs> say that next season or the one after is the first season that Phoenix make the playoffs. Where does DeAndre Ayton sit in terms of leading points per game on the team on the next Phoenix playoff team, Max? Second. This season, for context's sake, he is third behind Booker at 24.5, Warren at 18.5, Ayton sits at 16.5 currently. I, I jumped the gun there a little bit. Uh, second, I think. I think that it's going to be a situation where Booker's, you know, 27-ish, Ayton's low 20s-ish, and TJ Warren at that point's probably... Our super sixth man, you know, 18. Right? Yep, no surprises there. Now, before any of that, we have the rest of the season to contend with, Max. After getting four wins in mm -hmm. 28 games, the Suns now have eight in just 32. That means there's 50 to go, as I alluded to earlier in the episode. How many can Phoenix win of the final 50 games, Max. How many can they win or how many will they win? Uh, let's go will they win, Max. See, and this is going to sound depressing, but it's not supposed to be. As we just spoke about, the West this year is just going to be an all-out, drag-out, gunfight, just, <laughs> just clawing each other in the face sort of battle. No one's going to be tanking. Yep. So it's going to be extremely hard to rack up wins. Even still, they're playing a lot better. Yeah, I think they're going to end up with a total of like 25, which is what? That means they're win 15 more, so 15 and 35. Is that math right? 17. So oh, 17 okay. and 23 well, we would go for the... I'm bad at math. <laughs> it's also very late where you are. I should let the, let the listeners know. Uh, we, we try our best to get an episode out every week, and it means that one of us is often doing a, a weird shift. But uh, I'd be pretty happy with 17 and 23, particularly if they were playing the right way, and that would be a pretty encouraging end to the season. And as you noted, it, it could still put us in pretty good uh, lottery position with the scrap in the West. So uh, that's, you know, that's pretty much best case scenario for the rest of the season. I'm not sure if uh, fans want to hear something better than that, but uh, that, that would actually be a pretty good result. Yeah, I'd go on a giant tangent here, but I, I haven't asked on Twitter before whether it's worth it to start tanking. 
right now. But it, it's I don't think it is at all. For one thing, because of the new lottery odds. Yeah. But also because, man, I don't know how much people have watched this draft, but like this, really, you just gotta win the one spot. So if you don't win the one spot, like you're kind of in a crap shoot zone anyway. Uh, and winning the one spot, it's just with the new lottery odds, it's all over the freaking place. So th- this team needs to put their players in the best possible position to win, and that's what they need to be doing, not worrying about the draft. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think even with the old rules, with how shallow this draft yeah. looks, that you would be uh, tanking, as you just said. So uh, I'm all for the Suns trying uh, trying to win games because I think that's where the development comes from. And uh, Yeah, you tank I, to I, get your young core right, and this team has a young core, we think. Yep, and probably to, to back up what I said before, is being very positive about an otherwise uh, pretty negative front office and, and ownership structure for the last few years. But, uh, you know, the comments around them flicking the switch, I think were very much uh, misconstrued and, and just meaning that they feel like they've got their young pieces now and mm-hmm. it's more about developing those guys rather than going back to the well again. However... If you uh, don't mean to and, and stumble into a, a person like Zion, then you would snatch up the opportunity, Max. Yeah, I'm certainly not going to not take Zion if it's the first pick. I'm not going <laughs> to pass on it. No, we're okay. We have our young core. You can keep Zion, Duke. Yeah, we, we were too lucky to win that lottery, guys. We'll um, we'll just draft Bol Bol instead and, and let someone else have Zion. <laughs> the Bol Bol and DeAndre Ayton era. Let's go. <laughs> minute Minute, I should say. <laughs> minute Minute. I love Minute Minute. All right, well, that is it for us. You can follow David at The Four Point Play. You can follow me at MaxMCC11. You can follow our podcast at 7SOLPod. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We really appreciate it. David, thank you very much. It was fun to rave about the team for once. Yep, and we got another Aussie review thanks to Dr. J. We're still trying to hit that 55 stars. Dr. J? I didn't know Dr. J was Australian. (laughs) And he listens to our podcast, Max. Wow. Uh, We're chasing the 55 star reviews in the US, so uh, help us out with that one, guys. And as I alluded to before, we will attempt to keep bringing you pods every week uh, with Christmas and, and New Year coming up. We'll uh, might be a little off our normal schedule, but uh, the Suns have plenty of winnable games coming up against Washington, Brooklyn, Orlando, and a back-to-back at home versus OKC and Denver, which will be tough. So there'll be a lot of Suns basketball to talk about, and I look forward to jumping on with you again very soon max we promise i think i can say this for you david we promise that if they win all of those games we'll record at least one podcast about it yep and it'll be four hours long (laughs) it might be thanks guys